This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, logging is a dangerous job, but some Canadians love to do it. Kevin Wenstob and Sarah Fleming from Big Timber, the TV show on history. Tell us about what it takes to work in Canada's logging industry and what you can expect from season three of the show, Big Timber, History Channel, On the Globals, The Stack TV, and all of those. Check it out. Russia has pulled out of a key region in Ukraine just hours after attempting to annex it. Lawyer and advocate Stefan Berko joins us from Kiev and tells us more about Putin's latest blunder how they're getting ready for the possibility of nuclear attacks and if the victory is giving Ukrainians hope. Plus, are you okay with kayaking and mascots? This is the Shift Podcast. To let us know if you are okay with kayaks, kayaking. Are you into the, the kayaking? The kayaking, uh, yes, I love. Uh, yeah, I would consider it a water sport. I, I really enjoy really? water sporting. I did quite a bit of canoeing when I was a kid, and part of canoeing is also a little bit of kayaking. And it's a little bit more, you know, personal because it's real person, uh, and mm. it's more about the speed. And you're really, really low to the water, so you feel really connected to it. So it's a little bit trickier than a canoe, but uh, mm. I love love kayaking. Yeah. Yeah. See, I find it, uh, I, I guess I, I think of it like canoeing, I suppose. Like if you're kayaking, you're doing like whitewater rafting kayaking. That's crazy. Wow. That's got to be fun, right? But scary. But if you're just out going for a little paddle, I don't know. BK? Yeah, I've done it. I've only done it once. I did it in the uh, Comox Valley. Went kayaking about. Really? Uh, yeah. I did a kayaking there, kayaking with the seals. And yeah, it was fun. I liked it. Oh, I enjoyed oh. it. It was a little difficult at first to get uh, going in a straight direction because it kind of wanted to like tilt to one side sort of deal. But mm-hmm. I remember figuring out eventually. And then, yeah, seals were all around eating fish, just popping up and looking at me and then going back in the water. It was a good time. Now, did that make you nervous? You know, you see those videos and those, you know, whales that come up to the the boats right it'd be like a little bit of a panic like they might eat me or tip me over or something like that were you worried about that about the little well seals? no these are harbor seals i've had experience with harbor seals they're pretty benign pretty benign little mm. creatures and they're not remotely interested in humans to be honest no mm-hmm. are they really like the dogs of the ocean dogs of the water yeah pretty much yeah seals yeah not remotely interesting the noise you made earlier was actually a sea lion which is different a lot of people think they're oh. the same, but they are different. How are they different? Uh, sea lions are usually upright, for one. Um, they can walk as opposed to seals, which kind of flop. Um, yeah. yeah, sea lions are the ones, uh, the, the California sea lions are the ones that uh, um, that typically can like stand upright and like at those mm-hmm. stupid aquarium shows, they can wave their flippers and stuff. Um, yeah. And they make that noise. No well, harbor seals and regular seals, or, or, don't, they don't make that noise. No. What noise? They, are you going to give us the noise that they make? You got a little... I don't, they never really made any noise. No. They're pretty quiet. I'm not doing it. No. Harbor no. seals didn't... Come really on, Rye. I don't even know. I have no idea. I, had, I, I have no idea. Anyway, uh, this is about kayaking. And um, how about a nice long trip? Like, I can imagine a canoe going camping, quiet place, set up your tent, 
nice and quiet in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. How about 91 days in the water in a kayak? Good. I think I'll pass. Okay, can you get out? Yeah, you're- Can you you get out? Well, you're on the water, so I suppose you could, but a man just completed a journey from California to Hawiwi. He went to Hawaii via kayak, and yes, it took more than 90 days. Cyril Demero, Deremo, pardon me, a 46-year-old has been working on the project for four years he first intended to embark in 2020, then canceled those plans because of COVID. Last year, rough season, uh, a damaged anchor derailed his first attempt. After less than a week, a U.S. Coast Guard uh, helicopter rescued him outside Santa Cruz. So what do you do after that? After you get rescued by a helicopter, you do it again. He did it. Third try. Deramo began this year's trip in Monterey in June. A 23-foot-long kayak outfitted with a water desalination system and an interior cabin for him to slide down into. Now, the voyage required at least nine hours of rowing a day. Well, um, I mean, it's all about training because physically, you know, 10 hours a day, you could do it if you go easy. You could walk for 10 hours a day. And pretty much, you know, this is similar for paddling. I went easy and but you need to have the right calories so i was eating four thousand calories a day i was making sure that i would rest sufficiently at night and that's why i had this cabin that is completely waterproof and that was my cocoon that was my safety at night but yes during the day you're in the middle of the sun you still have to paddle those 10 hours you know four hours in the morning two in the afternoon and, and then four in late afternoon and um the training is crucial because the tendons and um, is the most important. It's not really the muscles. It's repetitive motion. You're going to have to have the right um, tendons just to, to follow that. But uh, I'm so glad I made it. My 23-foot boat world came to an end when I arrived in Hilo with all those hugs. It was fantastic. Standing up must have been hard after sitting for three days or three, yeah. uh, three months. But, I mean, at least he's getting a leg workout. He's, it's not like he's sitting completely still. He's got the paddles inside and yeah. outside. So, and I would it, assume that he moves back and forth. Yeah. It, well, it actually, the way, yeah, that, and I, I wonder if it's also kind of like a paddle boat, like when you rent them at the, like, the local like man-made lake and it's the tiny little paddle boats. Can you imagine paddle boating from one side no, of the ocean to the other? Oh, it's just, I can't well, I, imagine. I don't think that you like you're like you're being like a pedal boat. Yeah. No, I don't think that his feet move that way. I think he rows just with his arms, but still, like, well, I mean, what if you, what if you point yourself in the wrong? Like, what if you just, I don't know, like point yourself in the wrong direction and you miss? Use like the stars, I, man. I don't know. This is crazy. I that's wild. Of all the projects, that's that's a wild one. That's from ABC Seven. Um, we are. We are, don't want to spoil the whole story. Ryan's trying to reach out and get this dude on the radio, so we don't want to like ruin the whole thing. We'll find oh, out. I, for one, am envious of the amount of time he got to spend away from people. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, your, that's your big mm-hmm. takeaway. I might go do that. Yeah, yeah. I might just. I'm not with no end destination here. Just go yeah. off into it's the just ocean. Paddle. Yeah, it's just paddle. Yeah. There you go. Give her. Yeah, like a like an old cat walking into the woods. There goes BK paddling his way into the silence of no people. Oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> Are you okay with mascots? For the most part, they're cool. Yeah, I I, I think it's 
I think it's good, you know, because if the team's having a bad day, the mascot can come in and have some fun. And one of my core memories as a child was my first ever hockey game. I was in Ontario. I was born in Calgary, right? And then moved to Ontario. And so we went to the Leafs game and it was mascot night and they had mascots from all across the NHL there, including Harvey the Hound, the Calgary Flames mascot. And he came up and I hugged him. I was like, I'm from Calgary. And I felt like connected to the Flames, even though they weren't even playing. And so I got a real appreciation for the art of the mascot. But you can also make some serious bank. The guy who plays the Denver Nuggets mascot makes $670,000 a year. What? How's yeah, that? The high, highest paid mascot in the world, $670,000 a year to dress up like a snake and hype up the game. What? Really? That can't be. Yep. Why is yep. the mascot for the Nuggets a snake? I think, I think it should be like sure a, a nugget, like a gold. Oh, no, it's a lion. It's a lion. It's a lion. Hmm. It's not a snake. I was getting a confused about Shouldn't it. Shouldn't it be so like real. a gold nugget? Like a chicken? Yeah. Just, a, just, just literally a nugget of gold with legs. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was thinking more like a chicken. It could just be a chicken, and then they call it a nugget. Or, or at least it's Denver. At least like a mountain or something. Like a, just a walking mountain. His name is Rocky, mm. and he does have a mountain jacket on. It's got some drip, actually. Mm. I gotta say, it's pretty good. Look. And he's a snake. Is there snakes in Denver? No, no. Sorry, he's a lion. He's not a snake. Well, there's definitely not lions, lions in Denver. No, so. yeah. No. <laughs> does it? Not? <laughs> you never know. Have you seen uh, what's his name, the Tiger King? I don't know. Yeah, um, that's true. Street characters in Calgary is one of the biggest and best in the whole wide world at doing mascots. And I've been to their factory before where they do it, and. Um, they have literally done most of them. And it is just fascinating, the work that they do and how they make that stuff work, by the way. Really cool stuff. Well, every team needs a mascot nowadays. The Seattle Kraken, the NHL's newest team, last year they didn't have one. This year, though, they have unveiled their new mascot. Now, what would you expect for the Seattle Kraken to have as a mascot, like a gigantic, cool-looking kraken, or maybe an octopus, or some sort of sea creature. Yeah. Nope, they didn't go that way. They picked something completely different. Not quite sure what it was. Looks a little bit like a troll, a giant blue troll that is creepily happy. And it seems NHL broadcasts were also unsure as what to think of it. I hope everybody is. The mascot has been revealed. It's Bowie, Seattle Sea Troll, who lives in the caverns of Climate Pledge Arena. My goodness, Canucks, Kraken, straight ahead. Not too bad. Not bad at all. I like it, I think. <laughs> was that, was his name Pooey? Bowie, like a Baba Bowie oh. without the Baba at the front. Oh, like boy, like um, like a floating yeah, thing like for the, the ocean. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, I thought he said Pooey. I'm like, okay, that's a wild name for a mascot. It's <laughs> a Pooey design. Um, I think he's kind of cute. He's got looks like a troll. He looks like one of those trolls where you rub its head and its hair gets all crazy. He's got kind of pointy elfy ears. This isn't a guy with as I have elfy ears. I think that this is this is cool. I mean, how could they really do a, a giant octopus? And have like five people in it or something trying to move it around. I mean, I think this is. I like this guy. Well, if you have it's to make it hair. giant, no. you could just make it average size, just a small little octopus face. And what does this got to do with the team? Like this is again, this is like the whole Nugget situation. Like why? why it, it, Seattle could also be a mountain, more than a troll. I don't it could know. Be a, 
a fish. It could be. Maybe? It could be the space needle. It could be something to do with. It could be Doctor Fraser Crane. It like it doesn't have to be like a troll. Dr. I don't Fraser get it. Crane. Eddie Here's a giant Crane. Starbucks cup. Kurt, yeah, Cobain. So, Kurt Cobain's. Okay, hair. so one of the best of the mascots would be Gritty from Philadelphia. Yes, but Gritty's not a thing. He's just an orange fuzzball. He's just gritty, but that's because like gritty is absurd and will throw a pie in a fan's face because it's funny. And just lives into the chaos that is Philadelphia. And Philadelphia right? is so, gritty. It's a gritty. Yeah, exactly. Place. So I think that kind of lives into that. Like if if the Calgary Flames ditched Harvey the Hound for a crazy monstrosity, it would make no sense. But it makes sense for Philly. But Harvey the Hound also makes no sense. Aside from a dog peeing on a fire hydrant, and maybe that's a fire. Like I don't understand any connection to it. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't understand. At least in Vancouver, they've got an orca. Isn't he an orca? Yeah, he's yeah an they've orca. got an orca. The okay. Maple Leafs have a polar bear. The Oh, the Montreal Canadiens have a UB, which is literally just a giant orange thing that was also the mascot for the Montreal Expos. See? So the Makes design no is, is weird. Like, there's no universal code on how to do a mascot. There's just strange choices. I like, but buoy though. I, how long does it take before someone throws him in the water and see if he floats? That's what I really <laughs> yeah. want to know. Yeah. I like that. All right. Buoy the troll is said to be inspired by a statue of a troll in Seattle. It apparently needs a special diet. Here's a quote from the team's marketing manager. His favorite meal is a piece of shark with a sprig of maple leaf, and he's uh-huh. very much a music guy. And I so and so I think we'll see lots of dancing, beatbox, and grunge inspired by the music scene in Seattle. There you go. He doesn't wear plaid though. Apparently, the team preferred to use a more child-friendly character rather than a giant sea creature. I think he's cute. I think the kids are going to love him, although he looks kind of evil. It's it could go it could, it could go either way. I, I, I re- it really could, but I mean, it's um. Um, I, hey, you know what? It's better than the uh, the Cincinnati Reds, whose mascot is literally just a man with a giant baseball head. So, see, that makes sense to me. I like this. If you go to shiftheads.ca, you can see pictures of Bowie, the mascot. As I post them up there for you on our Facebook group, you can participate in that. I think he's kind of cute. Let us know your thoughts. 877-399-9898. You can check that out. Um, let's do one more quick one here. We can't waste any time so we don't take too long. Are you okay with happy hour? Yes, please. Cheap mm-hmm. beer during the day. Exciting. Yeah. yeah this is like See? any other hour of the day for me. Right. See? It's always happy hour for BK somewhere in the world. Yeah, I um, I happy. did get a free drink on the flight. That was kind of nice. Ooh, excellent. Hmm. Uh, drinking, but cheaper during the day. What could possibly go wrong? Did you know that happy hour is actually illegal in some U.S. states? Terrible states to go to. That was due to drunk driving crashes in the eighties in Massachusetts, for example. You cannot have happy hour, so instead, people would just drink at home, then drive to the bar because that's a better solution. It looks like people of Boston will finally be able to enjoy a cold beer at two dollar discount in the afternoon. State Senator Julian Sear sponsored a proposal to lift the decades-old happy hour ban and instead leave it up to cities and towns to opt in. Late Thursday night, that passed in the Senate, and now it needs to pass in the House and through the governor's pen. 
plenty of people asking for happy hour, and I'm like, no, actually, we're one of the only states that can't. Bar managers say drink discounts would boost business. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, any way that we can serve drinks affordably or more affordably. Massachusetts was actually the first state in the country to ban happy hour. That was back in 1984 in response to a series of fatal drunk driving crashes. Now, some 38 years later, we're one of just eight states in the country with a ban still in effect. I think it's kind of outdated. I mean, I'm just looking at financial. I think the restaurants kind of struggle from it because everyone just stays at their apartment until they want to go out where in like New York or other states like that people are out from five to the rest of the night and they're having fun having fun that's from CBS4. Even with public support, it looks like the man is shutting it down. The state governor said that he would veto a local happy hour option, saying most likely they would shut it down. Maybe this is uh, me being an old... Ryan wrote this. this. Maybe this is me just being an old fuddy-duddy, but I think most places do just fine based on the current rules as they are. Or is that the uh, governor being a fuddy-duddy? Oh, no, sorry. That's not me. That's the governor. No, no. The governor's okay. lame. Cheap beer afternoon. This is the Shift Podcast. I have a TV show I want to talk to you about. A TV show that I really like. And a TV show that is on the TV. Well, because it's a TV show. It's kind of the way that works. Uh, It's called Big Timber. And uh, joining us from Souk, B.C., uh, we have a couple of very special uh, people. Now, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves so everyone can identify whom you are, whom, who you are with your uh, voice appropriately, if that's okay. I'm uh, Sarah Fleming. And I'm Kevin Wenstall. Now, you guys um, are Wenstall Timber Resources, and you are the lumber people. Is that fair? <laughs> Yes, we, we make boards and create stuff so people can create stuff. So it. we're the first step to building a house. How important is it today uh, is the timber world? And I, I asked that question with a, a little bit of an agenda, and I'll explain what my agenda is second. How important is this this world of timber and lumber in, the wor- in our world today? <clears throat> so should I be... Sir, would you like to? Oh, I could go. Well, I'm going to do this. Yeah, it's really important because we need timber for building a house, for making paper, for doing all lots of chemicals and drugs and and different products we need every day are made from timber or from fiber that comes from timber, and it's just a a, a very basic material that is used throughout our everyday needs, and uh, the most thing, the most popular thing is lumber that we're aware of, and we build. Houses, fences, docks, all those different things with it. So it's something that protects us, supports us, gives us livelihood, and is uh, one of the thing next to food for survival. Now, this is why I asked this question. I don't know if you know this or not. I grew uh, up in Port Alberni, <gasps> and I we had to move away in 1984 because everything that was changing with the mills, my dad was a millwright. We moved to Alberta. My dad went from, you know, the sawmills into oil. Uh, and um, and so there is a very special place in my heart for your TV show because when I get to watch your TV show, it takes me right back to that place. Now, when we talk about what is timber in this world today, it really got its butt kicked a few decades ago. And then that kind of figured its way out. And this is why I love watching your show because you get to see 
all of the hard work it takes to make this happen. And it's a very special world today that I see that you guys are in. Do you love it? Well, it's it's a world that has almost endless possibilities because of what you can do with this product. And then the fun part is is the challenge of getting the product out of the woods or from the beach where we're going to seek our timber from so that we can get it to the mill and manufacture it. And the next thing is making sure we can sell the stuff after we've had all our fun getting it. Because if we don't get money for it, we're going to be sort of up the creek. So that's where Sarah shines. <laughs> getting the money. Getting the money. Getting the money. It's the money lady. Well, and I've, I've seen on the show the uh, two or three real steps that go on here. And maybe you can help for everyone who doesn't know. I want you to watch Big Timber and, and, and the two or three steps that happen here. First of all, you've got to get in there and get these things out extremely dangerous that work and then you once you get them out you've got the the breakdowns of various things that happen once they get to the mill and then whether you're selling the timber uh like a wholesale is what i would call it you can please correct that term or whether you're actually processing and getting it to a market those to me seem to be the big three steps what what am i missing because it it seems like in every step of the way it's a whole lot of work there's there's a lot more steps um, it comes right down to just, well, maybe you can... Well, every every step is a challenge, for sure. First of all, we have to make sure we have a, an ample supply of timber so that we know what we can sell. And when people come in, we know what we can provide. And and knowing so that, that knowing where that comes from is the number one source, which I always have my finger on. So a beach combing is what is a new thing that sort of came up last year we started doing, even though I, I used to do it a lot when I was younger. And um, but it gives us a ability to have sort of a source of wood that isn't snowed in or, or locked up in the forest where we have to build roads to get to and all these different other obstacles that are in the way. So if we go just straight up Beachcomb, we can access wood quickly, uh, really fairly inexpensively. But we also have a lot of problems with weather because it can be rough out there. And some of the wood, if it's been rolling around on the beach a lot, has sand in it. And that's going to detract from the ability to manufacture it efficiently. So we got to, you know, balance all those things out. And the wood that's in the forest is is normally stuff that we bid on against other people and compete for that wood. Um, and But it's also, uh, it's got lots of uh, guidelines that are attached to it when we go to manual or to, to actually log it. So we have to do all the things as prescribed with the contract to take it out. So it's all done environmentally sensitive, friendly, all those things. And, um, and then also log it efficiently so that we can get the best value and make sure that once we're done logging, it's all up to speed, up to snuff, so that you know it, it's as prescribed in the plan. So it's a long bit. Both sides have lots of complexities attached to them, but that just gives us a fiber. Next, we've got to get it to the mill, which is pretty straightforward, trucking it or barging it, one or the other. Um, and then once we get it there, we then have to manufacture that into a product. And then we don't really know for sure, being the timber that comes from the mountain or the timber that comes from the ocean, if that's going to supply us of some specific product. So this experience it gives us that ability to know whether it's going to supply. So you always want to have more than you need so that you can make sure you can pull off that job you got to do. And, uh, but each one of those steps is, is intricate. It's got lots of complexities and it's, it's a tough job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you said you, so you kind of broke it down into three basic steps to get that finished product. And you had talked about wholesale. Our, most of our market is actually retail. We used to do wholesale for years, and then we sort of eventually shifted about 16 years ago, shifted over to mostly retail. 
but each of those steps that um, you have described, and Kevin has sort of um, gone more into depth, it's even more in- intricate than that. Like it comes down to um, having the industrial site where you can saw the lumber and get that set up, you know, applying for the timber sales, having the um, scale site designation, all those kind of things. There's so many more steps to it that we could be here for hours talking about it. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that if you've got time. Okay. <laughs> well, off we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now don't confuse Kevin with Relic. Kevin is much more handsome. Speaking of beachcombing, if we're going to go there. Um <laughs> Throw back to the TV show. That bad guy. Oh, <laughs> oh really? You're such a crazy guy with your silly jumbo. Oh, don't talk to me. I love it. Grew up with, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, if we can't can't replay our you know our past like that, you know, we're just we're lost. Yeah, you know, it's it is it is so much fun, and, and yet you get to you talked about environmental responsibility and all those things, which people might find that who have never been around forestry to be somewhat confusing. Back in the day, you know, there was clear cutting and there wasn't um, a whole lot of, you know, sustainability and, and replacement and planting put back in and everything has changed so much. So when I was young and it's a really cool world now um, of a world that keeps on giving when it's done properly, but Kevin, it must be cool to be out there when you guys are doing um uh, you know, the big jobs out of the hills. You, you guys are out there. You're in it all the time. Like you get to see this sustainable source. And I, I have a friend of mine who does uh, fishing up on the island and fishing tours. And he has a great example. And I'll translate it to that one because I can communicate that one a little better. Is that he always says, you know, I got to catch the fish, but I also got to protect the fish, right? I've got to be able to um, afford the fuel for the truck. But at the same time, uh, I've got to make sure that the water is clean. And it is a real dance constantly for him because he needs to be able to afford to do the job. But at the same time, he needs the he needs the earth to keep giving to him. So he's got to protect it. And he can't get greedy either. So how cool is it to be able to be around that and participate in that all the time and truly live into it? Well, it's, it's creating a balance so that you're not, you know, over harvesting, I guess is what you want to call it. And the same with fishing is that you have to not take it all because then there's nothing reproduce trees are a little bit different because the seeds are always falling and they're going to grow back no matter what uh fish is a little bit different because you know those the species or that fish individual that you catch and put in the boat it won't be back up that river to to reproduce right and each fish does a pretty dramatic or a huge reproduction thing um the, the, the trees are always dropping and as soon as as soon as the sunlight hits that ground and and uh you know it it, it sprouts um that's just a natural way and then but reforestation which is planting and, and they have planting programs and each one of the, the timber sales we work on has a planting program and as soon as the first tree is cut down on that site that's the time uh, the clock is ticking from that point on by the that they have it legislated when it has to be replanted by so you have to they say when do we when do you cut down the first tree well it's then okay we've got to get those trees on the ground by this date and that's that's the way that works so that you know they've got a guideline to work with and and they maintain that that would be the forestry and uh, so there's those things which are just basic things that are in place but there's looking out for all the environment around you like the creeks and um, you always leave a there's areas that are left along creeks for creek protection and, and uh, depending on the creek size and leaf patches in in the log areas and uh, so it's all laid out and well designed before we even get there and so what we're doing is, is just buying the standing timber, but we have to put the roads and do all the work necessary to get that timber out. And um, 
but each one of those things you do, which is building the road, falling the trees, yarding the logs out, trucking them down to the sort or wherever, or bringing them directly back to the mill. Um, each one of those tasks is a task, which is a story, which is what the show's about. Mm-hmm. And so it, it explains it throughout when you get to see each step along the way and how this pro- progress happens. So it's, it's great that way. And, uh, but it's still, you know, every one of those steps has to be, you know, adhere to right so that we're not being detrimental to our surroundings and um just keeping everything flowing smooth as smooth as we can yeah <laughs> but uh, that's what it takes well big timber is a fantastic tv show i invite everybody to watch it it's not only about that though it is about the family it is about everything that you 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 have there um it's a good thing that your 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 sons can fix everything um you're <laughs> quite lucky but then again you get to keep that family unit close together talk to me about for everyone who doesn't get a chance to work with their family, I mean, the two of you, you still seem to really like each other. That's a good start. And um, I said seem to. But then you, you, also have the, uh, you also have the kids around. So how special is that? Because Big Timber is not just about the timber and the, the logging. It is, about, it is about the family. That's true. <laughs> I, I Can't argue. It really does... Um create a special bond um, within the family about that. Like, but there's um, all our other employees too, that are, are somewhat like family in the sense that you get to know them quite well. But um, you know, what you would normally say um, working with somebody when they're family, it brings out the worst and the best in you. And um, sometimes just being able to learn how to deal with those problems in the regular work day is the, is the best part of it. But like I say, it's the best and the worst. <laughs> yeah. But trust, right? Trust and... Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. the trust there. Yeah. And you trust that everybody's working towards a common yeah. goal. Yeah. You can communicate with family. You can, you know, you know, we all got to do things we don't want to do and get the job done. But, you know, we're there to do it. And that's what, uh, okay, well, this is a crap job. We're going to do it. But, you know, um, that's just what we got to do. It just really... stick together to make it work. Mm-hmm. And... and it really teaches the kids resilience yeah. and, and the, you know, they've seen their father do that all their lives. And then now they're working with them and um, it really is an education in itself. But it's, it, yeah, but working together, it makes the strongest team and you know, the best real team you can support each other. Okay. So. I have a, I need a confession from you. <laughs> so you, uh, some of the equipment is really old. I mean, it's expensive, right? So you got to you gotta squeeze it. You got to get some stuff out of it. And I know that, you know, the fixing of the stuff, there's been some grief that has been tossed your way about like this thing is being held together with zip ties and glue. We need, we need something new. And then it's, well, that's too much money and everything else. Do you really sometimes just be like, eh, I'm going to, ch-. I mean, I'm a dad. I'm going to challenge the kids. They could, I want to see them make this work. Do you ever, you know, Play the dad well, card. Yeah, it's about ingenuity, and, and people have to figure out problems without just going to the store and getting something brand new. Because even though a lot of this stuff is old, um, it's better quality than the new stuff you buy. So you get some new, up-to-date, fancy equipment with computers and stuff, and you get it to the site, turn it on, it quits after two hours because some sensor doesn't work, and you don't know what the problem is because you don't have a computer to figure it out. Get the old basic stuff, which, you know, is a little crotchety, it still is just as fuel efficient, um, but it just doesn't have all those extra features and super comforts that the new stuff has. And uh, but it 
is reliable. And if something does, it's a little rattly in this and that, but it's so what it's a little loose, but it still is doing the same job, which is picking up those logs or dragging that thing out of the bush or whatever it needs to do. Um, and it still does the same job in the same amount of time as something that costs 10 times as much money. So you want to make sure it keeps running. And we've got a lot of stuff we're always fixing. And, you know, it, it, it costs a reasonable amount of money to buy it. You spend a reasonable amount of money making it so it's reliable, but it's still worth four times or five times what you got invested in it. You've got practically the same machine as a new one. Just one more thing, which is a paint and coat of paint. And she's super duper. Now, now listening to what Kevin just said, Sarah, um, you know, it rattles a lot. It groans a lot. Um, you know, just a little coat of paint to look all right. Is that how you feel about Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> No, she doesn't. She thinks I'm great to win. Uh, you know, he needs a little bit of maintenance. Um, definitely. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Uh, back to uh, the, the Big Timber TV show, Kevin. And, uh, and Sarah, I know that you don't get out in the, in the bush the same way that Kevin does with the crews always. But you... Um, it actually, I like to stay home. <laughs> do, you, do you ever get in there and stand in that environment, look at the trees, look at the river, Mother Nature and all those things, and just stop Kevin and go wow, like this is just still after all these years, remarkable how this all works. Uh, to answer, answer truthfully, I would have to say, yes, <laughs> I do. So I appreciate the surroundings and, you know, just the way it changes on a daily basis from just the weather and the sun, the, the rain, the snow, all those different things are a totally different environment each time something happens in the weather. And there you are, you're in, you know, the air blows in from the ocean and it's fresh from there. And, you know, you're not dealing with all the other problems that most of the people in the world have to deal with. You're just up there dealing with the challenges you create for yourself. And so your your own worst enemy or best supporter, I mean, depends on what, what you do to set it up so you're going to succeed. And, but it's a great environment and it's something that is, you know, I wouldn't want to trade it. Uh, Kevin Wenstaub and Sarah Fleming, Wenstaub Timber Resources. Big Timber's the show. What can we look forward to specifically for adventures on the season? Oh my God. We got car chases. We got Batman. <laughs> There's all kinds Batman. of really cool coming. And Santa Claus is dropping in for a surprise. <laughs> oh, shoot. I let her on the bank. There's definitely lots of excitement. Um, our final episode has a big surprise. It's pretty exciting for our family anyway. Um, but there's, um, like Kevin says, there's lots happening. Each each episode is is full of, it's really diverse. And after, you know, there I am, we're, we're, we're you know, filming all this stuff and see how it gets put together. I mean, it's, it's it, this season really is, the way it's done is, artistry i mean it's 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 really good i can't believe how good it is so so <laughs> tough luck so- tough luck you're gonna have to watch them all now <laughs> i can't believe how good it is that's so awesome oh fantastic thank you congratulating somebody else it's not me it's young people who've done such a great job yeah the production just, team is we're great. just there on the sidelines you know and they take that and make a you know tell the story the way it should be told It's a beautiful thing. Big Timber, Kevin and Sarah, thank you so much for jumping in and spending some time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. This is The Shift Podcast. Late last week, there was a big party at the Kremlin. 
Vladimir Putin said, hey, we got four new annexed areas of Ukraine. They voted to be with us. Now, everybody knows that wasn't the case. If by voted to be with us means we showed up with guns at your doorstep, then okay. But it was not democratic. It was not legit. And then a day later, it changed. Joining us now from Kiev, Ukraine, Stepan Berko. He's a lawyer advocate and uh, works hard to build what the future of Ukraine looks like. And he's got the handsomest mustache in all of Ukraine. Stepan, how are you? Hello, Shane. I'm good and happy to be here. You're still uh, taking care of that mustache for me, though, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's good. I'm going to repost your picture. I put a picture of you up on our Facebook group. I'll post that up so everyone can know what I'm talking about, how amazing your mustache is. Um, how is Kiev today? Can you help us understand the general tone of things that are going on in and around you with your friends and your colleagues, Stefan? Uh, <clears throat> Kiev is uh, in, in the midst of, you know, autumn rains. Uh, so the, the weather is, is gloomy, and I would say that uh, among my colleagues, uh, the the spirits are high when we hear news about uh, our towns and uh, cities liberated. But at the same time, some caution uh, and um, some cautious thoughts about what to do if uh, or in case anything happens with a nuclear strike. So despite the fact that uh, these uh, Russian nuclear threats were taking place even earlier, but only now, I think it's uh, the, the first time when people are taking these uh, threats more seriously. So it's, I would say that this is something new uh, in, in the discussions and con conversations among regular Ukrainians. Now, there are two sides to the story. We'll save the nuclear part for just a little bit, and let's talk about the Ukrainian flag flying high. Everybody around the world, and I realize that's a very broad statement, but I think it's safe to say, knows that everything that happened in regards to annexing this territory legally was not the case. Then in the, in the Kremlin, they go and they do this big speech about celebration and all this. And then a day later, Ukrainian soldiers run... Russians out of these places, a couple of them anyway. And um, I've been watching a couple of um, a couple of Twitter feeds uh, through connecting through, you know, Mikhailo and you and all and all that about what you guys are, are watching. And there's a couple of them that like every few minutes, every hour, there's another report of another town or village or something else that now has Ukrainian flag on it over the last day or so. There seemed to be a real domino effect of change. What do you think? Uh, I agree. Uh, so like uh, from day to day, we have some new news uh, about the fronts on the east and on the south. Uh, of course, uh, it's really hard to get some verified information because uh, they, they, uh, our troops have some problems with uh, internet connection, cell phone connection. But it's, we, we can see that something is going on. And also a great indicator is the, the spirit of uh, Russian media uh, and Russian uh, military correspondents on, on, the, on the ground. They are very, uh, their spirits are very low. And uh, for us, it's a, it's a great sign that our, our troops are doing good. 
Mm, we'll see. We'll see. Everybody expects something uh, uh, new to to envelop in in the south near Kherson, um, and um, nobody really cares of what Russians are saying uh, about this. Uh, Stepan Berko joins us from Ukraine over the internet. Sometimes that breaks up a little bit. And what I'm talking about is that this recent liberation of many different villages in and around um, the eastern end of Ukraine and what has started to change here on the shift. Stepan, um, are you back? Is he back? Yeah. Yes, I am. Good. Can you please continue your thought? Uh, as I said, so pe- people are expecting some news uh, about the um, Kherson region. Uh, of course, uh, things are not uh, going as quick and as fast as it was in Kharkiv uh, at the beginning of September. But um, we can see that uh, Russian, Russian troops are having problems, and it, this makes us very happy. <laughs> Now, there was estimated more than 300,000 young men have left Russia to avoid this draft or conscription or whatever you want to call it, which is more people leaving than than they said they were going to pull into the army. Now, there's been many uh, people have speculated that the 300,000 person number was a false number, that they were just going to draw in as many people as they possibly could, upwards of a million. Uh, but it is quite telling um, do you in Ukraine, I mean, I realize that some Ukrainians have family and this has created a, a lot of difficulty inside some families that, you know, are on both sides of the border. But is there any insight that you have heard about where these guys are going? I mean, are these people that are literally packing up everything into their car, driving away from Russia with the expectation that they can just never go back? Mm. The only the only things that I know about these uh, I don't know if I can call them refugees is uh, uh, what's on the media, but uh, also uh, I I hear some voices from these countries where they flee, especially Georgia and uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan and other countries uh, of Central Asia. Um, people. Uh, from these countries, citizens of these countries, they they say that many Russians that flee Russia because of this mobilization, they try to avoid, uh, they try to set their own rules in these these countries, avoiding some bureaucratic uh, uh, requirements that they have, for example, to to, to learn the language or to express uh, uh, with the bureaucrats in in their local languages, so uh, this this shows uh, to us in Ukraine that uh, even though uh, these people they don't want to fight, uh, they still have this uh, you know colonial attitude to people who used to be part of their empire, uh, and not only in Ukraine but in other countries, and this shows us that. Um, there is very little hope that even when uh, Putin's regime falls, and that will obviously will happen sometime in the future, uh, there is no sign that uh, at least uh, those, uh, even those those people of uh, more creative class, are ready to uh, abandon these uh, practices of uh, uh, 
colonial attitude to 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 uh, their former uh, colonies. Uh, we don't really care about the fate of these Russians. Of course, the the last people, the more people flee, the less people are conscripted. That's true. But Russia is uh, such a big uh, population. They'll have if if they need more people to go to the front, they'll have uh, uh, they'll have enough of them. Stepan Berko is in Kiev, Ukraine. Um, it is quite amazing some of the videos and such that are circulating on so circulating online. Accomplishments from uh, Ukrainian soldiers and what there's a, there's a term that I wanted to ask you. There's like an acronym. Is it ZSU or ZHU? What what is the term that gets batted around online for Ukrainian soldiers? It's a three letter thing. What, what is that? ZSU. That stands what does for, for? Zbrojne Sile Ukraine, which means Armed Forces of Ukraine. Okay. Now, if you are looking up anything online, look for the ZSU and find it because that's where you're going to, if you're on Twitter or whatever, you can see so much more because that is, um, that is the term that gets used, the acronym that gets used online to find all this. That's where I've found an awful lot of information. So I personally find that. Uh, particularly uh, helpful. Okay, nuclear, Stepan. Now, the conversation around nuclear politically has been this escalation of of stuff. And I've heard from our contacts inside Ukraine that, that you are taking this more seriously than ever before, the threat of escalation, all of those things. This is... It's a new level of, of worry that has been, I mean, everyone's kind of assumed, I guess, for so long that Russia doesn't, it doesn't mean it, they won't actually follow through on it. But then there's a new tone about worry about it in Ukraine. Is that because of the fractured nature uh, that people are seeing the breakdown inside Russia, this desperation stuff? Or what is, why is this different this time than any other threat in the past? I think it's because uh, we can see that Russia militarily is cornered. They have uh, almost nothing to respond uh, with in a uh, um, conventional uh, way. And that's why they uh, are talking about nuclear. And uh, since we in Ukraine, we understand that anything can happen and it's our responsibility to be prepared. And that's why many people are uh, reading some, you know, books and articles on how to uh, save uh, ourselves uh, if if uh, any nuclear um, incident happens. Um, so I would say the the reason is the Russian losses and Russian um, yeah the Russian losses on the front lines that make uh, it more possible for them to use nuclear weapon as the as their final card in the game it's really scary how do you uh how do you deal with that going to work every day what is the general tone uh in kiev i mean for those who are just joining us and and don't know Stepan berko is in kiev he's a dad and he's a professional he's um you know so you do your professional life working every day in and around the law and at the same time, you're still just a dad. So with this overarching threat of nuclear 
and this, this must change things in your day. What does it look like for you these days as this ever-changing threat uh, continues? Um, people are sharing some tips on what do they have to buy or have at home in case uh, anything happens. Like people are buying raincoats and masks uh, uh, and uh, some, I don't know, uh, some other things that might be useful in case uh, of uh, nuclear threat. Uh, people also are buying some uh, medicine that... Uh, um, that might help in case of uh, the radiation. So, yeah, more talk about uh, this possible nuclear threat. Uh, but I also think that um, these uh, these talks and these um, tips that people share and these uh, the, the fact that people buy some stuff. This is also a psych. I would say a psychological. Uh, instrument to calm ourselves so when you have something uh, at your home like a raincoat and you hope that it will uh, you can isolate your body from from the possible radiation this calms you down and you kind of feel more ready to this threat um, yeah so it's also I would say a psychological way of dealing with these new um, uh, information circumstances do you find it helps you when you, you know, get yourself a little bit more prepared for the potential threat? And my understanding is that with so many people going out shopping and buying these things, you know, that becomes its own level of trying to find the supplies you need and everything. I mean, you're not the only one that has shared that getting ready is um, is on, you know, your day-to-day routine. Do you find that it, it eases your mind a little bit, just a little bit of extra preparedness or, or, or maybe changing how you're ready all the time? Yeah, it does. Uh, for example, when I, when my, my wife told me that uh, we probably should should buy some stuff just in case, and when I bought some of these uh, uh, this equipment, she said, "Okay, now I'm more uh, calm. Now I now I feel that I'm kind of in control of the situation, at least some mm-hmm. at, at some uh, level." So yeah, I would I would say that this helps to 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 deal with with this. Now, when this all started, uh, that seems to be a recurring thing now that you mention it, that, you know, when this all started, your family left the country, you went to Lviv, you uh, lived with family and then worked. And then when everything settled down in and around Kiev, you moved home again. And I mean, it's been this constant, what can I control today to make this better in my world? Um, is that really been one of the keys to how you navigate through the day-to-day stress of, of this, you know, in your personal life and professional life? Mm, I think um, the first or the main uh, feeling is that you have to accept the fact that not everything is under your control Uh, and you cannot control everything in your life. Uh, Some things just happen because they happen. And then you try to find uh, uh, like a a sphere where you can uh, um, have this control. And that helps you understanding your uh, real uh, ability and uh, your real responsibility. So, like, I'm responsible for me and my family and to do everything that, uh, like, a general public and any family has to do to 
like ensure their safety in these circumstances. But I cannot change how uh, things uh, envelop uh, on the front lines. Besides funding uh, uh, some money for uh, our uh, armed forces. And when you understand, that, when you acknowledge this sphere of your responsibility, that helps you um, uh, managing your expectations and managing your uh, psychological uh, reactions. Here in Canada, I would say that there's a, a group of people that are would wait for the government to solve the problem for them, right? Like, give me the stuff, you take care of me, you protect me. And then there, you know, is a group of people that would do it as you describe it, right? Like you're responsible for your family, you're responsible for yourself. You've got to make sure you're as prepared as you can be to do whatever it is you need to do to protect that. Is this a shift in thinking as uh, through the course of the last year? Is this a Ukrainian mentality in general because of the overarching threat that's always been there? Or is, have you noticed a shift in your colleagues and friends uh, in the way that you go about that, protect yourself, take care of yourself, be prepared. Is this new or is this the way it's always been? <clears throat> it depends on your uh, uh, on your ex previous experience. There are still many people, uh, as you could imagine, in post-socialist uh, or post-communist state, who believe that the, the government has to do everything and provide you with all the supplies and, and the food and whatever. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the more, uh, I would say, during this war, people, they just face the reality that the government has only one uh, objective right now, is to protect our, us militarily. And that's it. Of course, the government... Uh, and according to the constitution and uh, everything, the government has to provide, uh, um, I don't know, um, home and uh, food and whatever for those people who cannot help themselves. But uh, the resources that the, our government is uh, have, has, they are not uh, um, infinite. And that's why we have to help each other. Uh, those who have more uh resources they have to help those who are in lack of resources that is why we have so many uh, um, volunteers rushing in these newly uh, liberated cities and towns helping those people there uh, knowing that uh, uh, they don't have food they don't have electricity gas and they don't have any means to help themselves and the government very often doesn't have these means to help them on the on the front lines. So uh, I would say that maybe uh, gradually this understanding of uh, being responsible for yourself, but also for those people whom you can help, comes to more and more people in Ukraine. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Hey, the shift that starts to happen through the course of. Yeah, the pressure and stress all around it. Well, uh, Stepan Berko joins us from Kiev, Ukraine. As always, Stepan, I, I do offer you this opportunity. What do Canadians need to know? What can we do today? What do you need or what do Ukrainians need uh, Canadians to know on this day with so much change that's in front? I mean, I wish I could say that not every chance we talk, we're talking about change so quickly. Um, as much as it feels like it's been a very slow-going scenario, it really hasn't been. It's been changing and changing and changing. What do Canadians need to know? 
My word to Canadians would be that we have to stick to our position and we have to live through this winter, whatever happens, and we have to be strong. Uh, and um, if, if a nuclear strike happens, you have to understand that this is not only strike against Ukraine, it's a strike against uh, the whole international order. And it's also a threat to you, uh, not only as a country, as a society, but to uh, it's a threat uh, to each of you. And that means that our common response have to be very precise and very um, strong. If we manage to uh, fight back this nuclear threat, uh, we will uh, survive as a civilized uh, international uh, international community. And I think that's uh, something that we have to remember uh, in our everyday reactions to what's happening and in our everyday actions. Must be exciting this talk about the new push for NATO again. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, People are excited about us uh, submitting this application, but people are also, at least many, are realistic about uh, uh, being admitted as a NATO member. Of course, uh, be- yeah. until we have this ongoing war with Russia, there's probably uh, very little chance of us uh, getting a NATO membership. But uh, the more we, uh, uh, the more we fight, the more we cause casualties for Russian army, uh, the more uh, we convince and are able to convince uh, the NATO members that Ukrainian armed forces are capable of protecting not only ourselves, but also uh, other European and uh, North Atlantic countries. So I hope that in uh, near future, we'll proceed with uh, these uh, talks and maybe in some years we will become a NATO member as well. Stepan Berko in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you, brother. It's great to hear your voice. It was nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.